Christchurch, New Malden. Sunday the 16th of October 2022, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Getting the Most Out of Giving. So, the, de- the definition of an oxymoron. Here it is. An oxymoron, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. A figure of speech in which apparently contradictory terms appear in conjunction. Rather a long-winded definition, so let's see a few examples. Here they are. He considered it to be an accurate estimate. Apparently that's an oxymoron. They were alone together. Another one. She was awfully good at this. And another. They followed at a close distance. And the final one, in time, their love grew smaller. Now, all of those apparently are examples of what's called an oxymoron. Seemingly contradictory words appearing together in order to describe something vividly. And the title of our talk this morning could be described as another oxymoron, couldn't it? Because that's what it's called, getting the most out of giving. And just to be clear, as I said earlier this morning, we are thinking about financial giving to the church. We've been having a series for quite a few weeks now, as I said earlier, called Getting the Most Out of Church, haven't we? And it's focused on things that are fairly obviously on offer here at Christchurch. Things like the worship, the sermons, the community. But getting the most out of giving can appear to make much less sense, can't it? If the sermon was called Engaging with the Need for Giving, perhaps. If the sermon was called Considering the Sacrifice of Giving, maybe. But getting the most out of giving, surely that's stretching the concept of an oxymoron beyond its breaking point. Well, perhaps. Unless we believe what I was speaking about last week. And if you were here, you'd have heard me talk about the utterly topsy-turvy nature of the kingdom of God. If you were here last week, you'll remember me suggesting that Mr. Topsy-Turvy, there he is, is the most Christian of the Mr. Men. Why is he the most Christian of the Mr. Men? Because of the way he turns everything upside down, the wrong way round and back to front. And when I spoke last week about this subject in the context of service, this was one of the passages that I referred to, where Jesus says these astonishing words, paradoxical, topsy-turvy words, that it's when we give our lives away for Jesus and the good news of his coming, the gospel, that we receive back those lives. And by the same token, when we try and cling on to our lives and make them just about us, we end up losing them. And as I suggested earlier, it clearly gained a good deal of traction because the responses that many of you gave last week on this slip of paper, which we handed out, which were to be filled in under the title, How Can I Serve? with little boxes to tick, the responses were really encouraging. Lots of you responded to this exciting but slightly scary challenge to step out in faith and to see whether this topsy-turvy truth about the kingdom of God is actually true. 
and we will be coming back in response to you on what you filled in fairly soon. And if you weren't here last week, then as I said earlier, please do find one of those forms. There's a whole load on the table out in the lounge and consider filling it in. Or if you think, well, last week I was a little bit cautious and my pen hovered over that box and I wasn't quite sure whether to give it a tick, don't worry, because if you hand in another form, I can cancel out the first one. Be better if you don't retract everything you said last week and hand in a form uh, just not ticking anything or something like that. But if you can consider that, that will be fantastic. It's all about stepping out in faith and this challenge to serve and then see the blessings that come as a result of this. That was last week. Surely it's a different thing altogether, though, when it comes to money, isn't it? It's fair enough for the vicar one week to get up and speak about service at church and this slightly strange idea of receiving back our lives through doing this. Manipulative, maybe, but fair enough. But financial giving? That's surely a completely different matter. What with the cost of living crisis and all the pressure and uncertainty that's around at the moment, it's surely completely irresponsible to suggest that the very same principles apply to what we do with our money. Well, maybe, but that's precisely what the Bible does. And when you think about it, it would be completely nonsensical if the Bible said that a major exception to the blessings that come our way when we learn to give our lives away for Jesus and the gospel, there is a major exception, and that's what we do with our wallets and our bank accounts. No, the Bible says those things are very much included. And it's why any series called Getting the Most Out of Church has to include the talk that we're having this morning about financial giving. And its basis is those two chapters that were read to us earlier by Ruth and Carol. Those two chapters of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. Now, Paul, by the time he wrote this letter, had a pretty dicey relationship with the church at Corinth. A lot of them had started to get really fed up with him and prefer other Christian leaders. And in other parts of this letter, Paul has to respond to this and show that his ministry amongst them was authentic. He has quite a battle on his hands if you read the rest of the chapters in 2 Corinthians. And you might think that he would hold back from in the middle of this letter making a challenge to them about financial giving. He had enough problems with them already, but he doesn't. In chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, he plunges in and he makes certain things clear about financial giving. And the first is this. There's going to be four points this morning. The point that he makes, and you'd have picked this up if you were listening to the reading earlier, is that giving, Christian giving, is all about grace. One of the remarkable things about 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is that Paul manages to write two whole chapters all about giving money without once mentioning the word money. And that's partly because Paul wants to emphasise the proper spirit behind the giving of money to the church. So he speaks of this in one place as an act of grace. In another verse, he speaks of the grace of giving. And when he speaks to the sophisticated Corinthians 
about the giving of their rough, poor northern neighbours, the Macedonians. He speaks of their rich generosity. And most famously of all, Paul says these words in chapter 9, verses 7 to 8. He says, each person should give what he, she has decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you may abound in every good work. And the point is really clear, isn't it? Financial giving to the church isn't primarily about duty or the practical need to pay for things. It's about something which God plants within us called grace. Grace is when you don't have to help someone, but you do anyway. Grace is when you don't have to forgive someone for something horrible that they've done to you, but you do it anyway. Grace is when you don't have to give any money to your church because that church will carry on supporting you, whether you give it or not, but you choose to do it anyway. Grace is something that is entirely freely given. Without the desire or the plan to gain anything back from this, and it's that very spirit of generosity which gives giving its liberating, kingdom-bringing power both for those receiving the gift, that's what we're going to pray for those shoeboxes going out to Eastern Europe, aren't we? But also for those giving that gift as well. Everyone are beneficiaries when grace happens. Those who are receiving grace and as much those who are showing it. And that's because of a second point that Paul makes in these chapters, which is this. Giving is all about worship. What is worship? Worship's our response to God for all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's why the songs and the liturgy that we use in services contain the words they do. And the principal thing that we're thanking God for in our worship is the grace that he has shown to us, aren't we? This is what Paul says in this passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Giving on our part, when it's genuine Christian giving, is all about grace. We've already seen that. But given that the supreme act of grace that surpassed all others was God sending us Jesus to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven and restored as God's people, Anything that we give in return is more an acknowledgement of God's grace than anything, isn't it? It's an act of loving response to God's grace. And in fact, it's an accurate indication of the love that we feel for God. But where the two things join up, giving as grace, giving as worship, where the two join up is that when we, when we worship the God of grace, that grace that belongs to God starts being transferred to us so that we become vehicles of God's ongoing power, God's ongoing work of pouring out his grace in the world. And that's where a third point that Paul makes in these chapters comes in, which is this. Giving 
is about community. The purpose of us being forgiven and restored through Jesus isn't fairly obviously so that we can just have an individual relationship with God by ourselves, is it? It's so that we can be a community of brothers and sisters in relationship with God and one another. A community for anyone and everyone, where the quality and the genuine nature of our relationships shows people outside this church what God is like, and hopefully people within this church as well. And as a result, draws all of us further towards him. And the present evangelistic strategy, the present missional strategy here at Christchurch is based on precisely this. It's why welcoming is such an important part before this service. That's why I did that thing with uh, Millie earlier on. And what Millie and Liz did at the start as you came in was so important. Welcoming before the service, refreshments afterwards in the lounge, is not a sideshow. It's intrinsic to what we're trying to do as a church. And of course, the basis of our shushfree approach here at 9.30 is to make all of those children and their hard-pressed parents know that God's utter welcome of grace is present. But also our lunch club grapevine, which I talked about last week. Our three cinema clubs, which are bringing so many people from outside this church into the building. The two parts of Half Shares, our widows group, which is again expanding. Men behaving dadly, bumps and babies and toddlers. They're all about seeking to build community in the name of Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ who came for everyone, and they're all intended to be a vehicle of God's grace. The idea is that people encounter God's grace and they're drawn further towards him and they know that he loves them. And members of this church giving their money is all part of the commitment to building Christ-like community. When Paul, in this passage, praises the Macedonian Christians for their generosity, it's significant that he says these words. They gave themselves first to the Lord, it was an act of worship, and then to us, in keeping with God's will. And Paul makes it clear that as well as financial uh, giving being all part of the way that a church community is intended to grow, it's intended to be part of making it more equal as well. Giving is part of a way that we make our community a more equal place with those who can afford to give more, giving more, so that the needs of those with less continue to be met. And Paul says these words, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. And of course, the relevance of this commitment to others goes beyond Christchurch. One of the things about being part of the Church of England is that we belong to a diocese, and we support other churches that frankly wouldn't be able to keep going without the money given by wealthier churches like ours. Whatever some of us might think about how our diocese is currently run, that's a calling 
and a responsibility from God that never goes away. Because we need churches in the poorer areas. We need churches in areas where they have nothing that's the equivalent of what we have in terms of a warm church, technology, uh, all of the things that we have here, and of course me as much as anyone can take for granted. And part of the reason we give financially is because of our commitment to other Christians who are more hard-pressed in other areas where they need their churches kept open, where they need their clergy paid for, and so on. It's all about building community and sharing God's love with those who desperately need to receive this. Fourthly and finally, because we can't leave it out, giving is about practicalities. It's important to recognise that in these chapters, Paul isn't simply putting out theological principles. He includes some very practical details about Christian giving as well. He knows, as every clergyman knows ever since, that members of churches can very often hear a challenge like this one this morning and really intend to respond to it, but never get round to it. And so Paul says to the Corinthians this, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. And that last part is really important because it's about giving a realistic amount and it's extended in the next verse where it says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. It's really important to recognise that uh, God hasn't got a spreadsheet of, uh, of sort of the amount of money that's expected from sort of everyone overall. God wants us to just give according to what we have. The other really important practical point that Paul makes in these chapters is about the administration of what people give. He makes it clear that it has to be above board. That's why he spends all of that time commending Titus. He was the one who received the Corinthians' gift. And Paul says these words, really important. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Administration of money in church life always has to be above board. What's more, it has to be seen to be above board. And that's why the integrity and the confidentiality of our equivalents of Titus here at Christ Church, Charweven Williams, our brilliant treasurer, and Anna Larkin, our finance and communications officer, has to be and is impeccable. And of course, what this sermon is all building up to this morning is the challenge to all of us who regard ourselves as regular and committed members of Christchurch to review our financial giving to Christchurch and its work. You see, there's an undeniable tension between the strategy of Christchurch that I spoke about earlier and its finance. Because what we want more than anything else is for people to feel welcome to this church and for every part of this church to offer God's love with no strings attached. For people to receive a really warm welcome, which whether they're young or old, rich or poor, posh or down to earth, black or white, Korean, Hong Konger or Brit, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty of other categories I've left out, but so that everyone feels utterly loved by God. But on the other hand, 
We need the money to be able to continue doing this, don't we? So there is an inevitable tension between what we've set out to be as a church and finance. But it's not an unresolvable tension. It's not an unresolvable one if we really believe in the reality of the grace that I was speaking about earlier and its power. The belief that once people encounter God's grace, God's powerful love in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and the freedom that this brings, it changes them into wanting to be a vessel of that grace. Someone who is committed to displaying that grace of God in their lives so that more and more other people can experience it. Committed to doing this with our service to God, what we thought about last week, but also committed to doing this with our wallet or our bank account. And that's why, rather like last week, there is a response to res- uh, chance to respond to this challenge this morning. You given two bits of paper as you came in this morning. One of them looked like this. That's for you to take away. That's explaining how are the best ways to give financially to the work of Christ Church. And the other bit of paper that you were given was this small slip of paper here. It will be somewhere around close to you. If anyone hasn't got one, wave and the faithful Chris will bring one to you. Chris was handing out these this morning as you came in. And this is a slip of paper to fill in if, and I say if, you're happy to be contacted by Anna Larkin to talk in complete confidence about giving to Christchurch, either for the first time or if it's something that you've already done but you want to talk about going forward in relation to. And the idea is that you fill this in, there are pens around. Mind you, about a third of the biros got nicked last week, so it will have an amnesty. Okay, I went up to Poundland, spent a fortune buying those biros. About a third of them got stolen last week. Anyway, there's an amnesty if you want to bring your biro back. We won't arrest you. Uh, or you can have it if you really want it. Um, but if you're happy to get a biro and fill in this, and when we have the collection, John, our church warden, will be coming around with the bags in the final hymn, and some people choose to give money that way, and that's great. We don't want to stop you doing that, fairly obviously. But if you're happy also to put this slip of paper into it as well, it is not making you a total hostage to fortune. Anna Larkin won't get on the phone or send you an email harassing and bullying you. But it's saying that you'd like the conversation. That's what it's doing. And Anna Larkin is very realistic about what's possible for people and what's not. And as I say, those conversations will be totally confidential. Incidentally, totally separate from me as well, I'm no part of that. But bear in mind what I said about earlier, particularly about what often seems to happen where people listen to a talk like this and are challenged and want to respond, in fact, often decide to respond, but then the moment is lost and they go back home and put the dinner on and look after the kids and whatever, and somehow it's never got around to. Let's make that difference this morning. Let's be resolved to respond to the grace of God. God utterly loves every single person here. God sent Jesus Christ to die so that every single person here could be forgiven and made part of his family. And wonderfully, God wants us to be a channel of his grace. God wants us not to just be forgiven people, sort of wandering around knowing we've been uh, led off, all the bad stuff we do. God wants so much more for us than that. God wants us to be a vessel of his grace to this world. 
Part of that is through our service, part of it's through our financial giving. So let's respond to this call to reflect back in the grace, worship and commitment to practical community what we're called to be like as followers of Jesus Christ. To engage with this Christian oxymoron of getting the most out of giving. We're going to turn to prayer. Let's pray.